Please do sit down. Let me add my uh, own welcome to that of Ben's earlier in the service and uh, encourage you to uh, do two things. One would be to turn uh, back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, the reading that uh, uh, Dave read for us just a little bit earlier, page 5 in the Church Bibles. The other thing that uh, you might find very useful is to uh, dig out the handout that I trust you were given in, uh, given on the way in. It should have been tucked inside the, the service order and uh, that will help you to see where we're going in the next few moments as we almost come to a close uh, looking at these early uh, first three chapters of Genesis. We've been doing this since the beginning of the uh, new year. We don't take sin very seriously these days. I say these days, but it seems to me that mankind never has, really. In a brilliant talk called Whatever Happened to the S Word, the preacher and evangelist Pete Woodcock shows how we make light of sin. He says uh, sometimes we we treat sin like the old cream cake advert. Do you remember that? Uh, Cream cake's naughty but nice. So we joke when we're offered something rather indulgent to eat. Oh, you know, I shouldn't, but I will. Oh, I know, I'm a sinner. And everybody chuckles. And suddenly we've made being a sinner a laughing matter. And we've reduced sin to something as insignificant as eating something sugary and fattening. It's all a way of enabling us to make light of sin. It says... Sin's not that important. Uh, Pete Woodcock points out that as you, uh, you see a similar thing at the, the, the seaside in the risque, naughty postcard that became popular back in the 1960s. Back then it was nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more, that sort of thing. You knew it was naughty, but it was a bit of delicious fun to send a, a slightly shocking postcard like that through the post. Now, of course, uh, the postcards are far more explicit, as are the T-shirts we wear. We seem to be totally unashamed of sending downright rude postcards through the post and we don't even blush when we wear t-shirts with coarse language blazoned across our chest. Clothing from French Connection UK being a classic example. We don't take sin seriously. Look at the stuff on our television sets with the resurgence in the popularity of stand-up comedy. Now, during prime-time television, you can hear audience roaring with laughter at jokes about things that only 15 or 20 years ago were considered quite disgusting. I find that I cannot watch Michael McIntyre's comedy roadshow because invariably at least one of his guests jokes about pornography or some kind of explicit sexual sin. And we don't take sin seriously these days. Listen to the uh, lyrics of our popular music. Uh, A few years ago, the Pet Shop Boys, who of course I I listen to regularly, uh, sang a song called It's a Sin. The song had a very serious message. They were singing about their repressive religious Roman Catholic upbringing. Everything I ever do, everywhere I ever go, it's a sin. Now look, there was something in what they were singing. Religion can be used to suppress any freedom. But at another level, the rhetoric of their lyrics enables us to write off sin as a sort of finger-wagging, puritanical way of taking all the fun out of life. And then Pete Woodcock points out the way we talk about sin in everyday parlance. So I heard a man introduce himself by saying, I'm a vicar for my sins. (laughs) What a bizarre expression. (laughs) And in many ways it's quite harmless, but it's just another way of making sin seem to be not very much at all really. Do you see how we trivialise sin, how we refuse to take it seriously? And uh, it seems to me that committed Christians are are no different. In some areas, yes, there are some areas that we know are unacceptable no-go zones, some things that we do take very seriously, but we seem to be quite happy to sin in other areas. Gossip. 
greed. It seems we've largely given up fighting against the sin of materialism. We quite like it. We don't want it challenged, certainly not from the pulpit. We don't take sin seriously, never have. But as we've been studying these early chapters of Genesis over the last few weeks, it should have changed our attitude towards sin. We should see what a terrible thing it is to rebel against the living God. It is a shocking thing to shake our fist in the face of God. And it is a sad thing that we turn away from the gracious, kind and loving God who gives us everything and who loves us so generously. Now this week as we turn to the second half of Genesis chapter 3 we should see how serious sin is not by looking at sin itself we did that over the last couple of weeks but by looking at God's response to sin looking if you like at the consequences of sin. Now as we do please remember the character of God. Now I've put on the handout there Exodus chapter 34 where we read that um, The Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord is a loving and kind and gracious and forgiving God. The Lord doesn't just fly off the handle at the slightest little irritant. He doesn't fly off the handle at all. He is slow to anger. And so when this God, who is so patient with us and abounding in love, when this God speaks and acts decisively and definitely against something, you know it must be bad. And that is exactly what he does here in Genesis chapter 3. See, through these weeks, as we've been looking at the first few chapters of Genesis, we've seen again and again that the Lord intended to spread life and blessing throughout the world. I wonder if you've connected with that phrase, life and blessing. We've used it almost every week. Now, here in chapter 3, we see that through sin, life and blessing is turned to death and curse. You see the opposite, life turned to death, blessing turned to curse. And death and curse are God's judgment upon a sinful and rebellious world. And, And so this morning we see death and curse coming upon the world. It should show us just how serious sin is. First then see that, uh, that as a result of sin the world is cursed, the first point on the handout. Look at verse 14 again. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. Now look over to verse 17. To Adam God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. See the language of curse. Because of sin, a curse comes upon the snake and upon the earth. And this curse language alone should help us to see how serious sin really is. Those of you who have been Christians for a long time and uh, and maybe have read a a thing or two uh, of Christian books will know that theologians tend to talk about the events of Genesis chapter 3 as the fall of man. Now that phrase is okay, but the language of fall doesn't help us to see really how serious sin is, not in the way that the language of curse does. You see, if I fall down, I can, I can get up and brush myself down and, and start over. And that, of course, is how many people view their relationship with God. Uh, their, their sin's not that bad. No, I'm not perfect, but no one's perfect. I'll, I'll pull my socks up and try a bit harder. That's the approach that many people have towards God. 
I'll try a bit harder. I'll try not to fall over again. But the harder man's kind problem, he's, not, 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 he's much bigger than a fall, that in some way we'd be able to get up from. Genesis 3 tells us that because of sin, the world is under a curse. And I can't just shrug off a curse. A curse needs to be removed and I can't remove it. So rather than living in a world under God's blessing, we live in a world under his curse, the opposite of his blessing. God's curse comes upon the world because our sin has turned the world upside down. I wonder if you've, uh, you get that feeling when you watch the news, particularly in the last few days or the last few weeks, all the things that have been going on. Do you ever get that feeling that everything's a bit topsy-turvy, that it doesn't feel right? Because it, it is topsy-turvy, it's completely upside down. And we see that as God pronounces the curse here. See, back in chapter 1, we saw the natural order of things. Now, I've, I've illustrated that in, in figure 1 uh, on the handout. See, chapter 1, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And indeed, the whole of chapter 1 shows that, that God created everything. In chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, we saw that God created mankind to rule over the creation. Uh, yes, to rule under God's rule, yet still to be in uh, some sort of rule over the creation. So there's the order. Do you see there? God, mankind, creation. That's the natural and right order of things. But now, as God pronounces the curse, we see that the world has been turned upside down. Now, I've shown that in, in figure two on the handout. You see, in verse 14, first, God curses the snake, part of the creation. Then he speaks to Eve, verse 16, and Adam, verses 17 to 19. And as we've seen over these last weeks in chapter 3, verse 5, mankind's sin was an attempt to usurp God. That sin turns everything upside down. Do you see the order? Creation, mankind, God. And then if, if you want even more detail, in figure 3, I've shown how even within mankind there's been a reversal of roles. So here in chapter 3, the Lord speaks to Eve first and then to Adam. But in chapter 2, we saw that the man was given the responsibility of being the head of the woman. Now, please don't mishear this. Uh, we've seen over and over again in these chapters that men and women are equal. Every time we've come to this point, I've, I've stressed that point. Men and women are equal. Women are in no way inferior to men. But men are given the responsibility to lead. Now, that order was reversed in Genesis chapter 3. Now, all of that may be too much detail for you. The big point is this. Sin is so much more than a fall. Sin has turned the world upside down. Sin is an attempt to put God at the bottom of the pile, elevating myself above him. It is very serious. And the consequences of sin is catastrophic resulting in the entire world being under a curse. And as we look closely now at the text, we'll see what a calamity that is. First, there's the, the curse on the snake, now verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, curse to you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and eat. you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now we're going to spend all of next week looking at these verses as we bring this whole series to a close. So I'm not going to spend any more time on those now. Uh, come back next week to hear more on those verses. Let's move then straight on to God's word to the woman and the man. We're oh, By the way, we're over the page on the handout by now. So the curse on the snake, 
And we're just about to come to the second point, the curse on the woman, and then the third point, the curse on the man. Now, as we do come to these points, the curse on the woman and the curse on the man, please, this is very important, please see that the curse has affected precisely the key roles that God gave Adam and Eve in creation. Because of sin, mankind is now not fit for purpose. We are no longer able to glorify God in the world as we should have done through the key roles we were given. Uh, So look at verse 16 and see then how the curse affects the woman. Verse 16, to the woman God said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. You will, with pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now you see here, here's the point, childbirth and marriage, the two things that are fundamental to the woman's role in spreading life and blessing all over the world. We saw that in chapter 1 and 2. Those are the two things that are affected by the curse on the world. So first, living in a cursed world brings pain in childbirth. I will uh, never forget the trip that Caroline and I made to the paternity unit before our twin girls were born. It was all part of the antenatal classes and so we we met at the the maternity unit with a number of other couples just a few weeks away from giving birth, all very excited. We gathered inside the entrance of the maternity unit, excited and looking forward to the evening as we'd been told that it would allay all our fears about childbirth. Yet as we stood there, waiting for the sister to arrive to show us around the unit, from down the corridor came a blood-curdling scream from a woman in labour. I I sent a shiver down my spine and as I I went as white as a sheet and I wasn't the one who was carrying a child. (laughs) Every time a woman screams in labour it should remind us of the terrible effect of sin, of rebellion against God. Now I I do need to stop here and say that uh, in the first service I I had to apologise. I've just found out that my my brother and sister-in-law are expecting a baby and they were here this morning and I realised how terribly insensitive this was so I want to (laughs) apologise... I want to apologise to others I know who are pregnant who are here this evening. But, you know, this is a fact of life. Every time a woman screams in labour, she reminds us of the terrible effect of sin, of rebellion against our God. The scream and pain should tell us how bad our sin is. Here's the thing. In God's desire to spread life and blessing all over the world, Eve was to have a crucial role of childbearing. An event that should have been one of the great... Uh, moments of blessing and joy, the unbridled joy of the beginning of new life is now marked by pain. In what should have been a moment of only delight and elation, there is great pain and worry and concern and struggle. Every time we see the agony of childbirth, it should remind us how serious sin is. Pain in childbirth. Secondly, a strain in marriage. Do you see it there at the end of verse 16? God says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, don't be fooled by this verse. At first reading, it can seem quite positive. Your desire will be for your husband. What husband doesn't want his wife to desire him? Well, that's not the way the word desire is used here in Genesis. Cast your eye over to chapter 4 and verse 7. Here the Lord is speaking to Cain. You may remember that Cain and Abel were brothers, but Cain was jealous of Abel. And so the Lord said to Cain, chapter 4, verse 6, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, 
Will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires, there's our word, it desires to have you, but you must master it. Now we all know that experience. Sin desires to have us. Sin wants to dominate us, but we have to master it. It's a constant battle, isn't it? And that's what goes on in marriage as a result of a rebellion against God, a battle. She desires him, chapter 4, verse 16. She wants to dominate him. He wants to rule her. As Derek Kidner puts it, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. That's the result of sin and of living in a world under God's curse. Eve was made to be Adam's helper, chapter 2, verse 18. She was to help him spread life and blessing all over the world. Now she's become his rival. See, marriage should have been nothing but bliss. We talk about married bliss. That's how it should have been all the time for all married couples. But now, because of sin, marriage, the closest of human relationships we can ever know, marriage has the propensity to become a power struggle. Verse 16, her trying to dominate him, him trying to rule her, at each other's throats, we laugh nervously because it's not funny is it really marriages that have gone wrong are so sad it's hard to believe when you see a couple on their wedding day that they'd ever end up like that as a vicar I've seen more than my fair share of weddings as I stand here taking weddings here as far as I know I haven't conducted any weddings where the couple are not deeply and madly in love with each other But life is not like the fairy stories that I read to my my children at bedtime. The prince and the princess don't always live happily ever after. It is a horrible thing to see married couples at each other's throats. It's the result of sin. But please, I'm not saying just their sin, although of course our own sin within a marriage will cause problems, but I'm just saying that is part of living in a world that is now under the curse. It's how it is as is the devastating pain of divorce. See, every time we see it, it should should tell us how serious sin is. Of course, in Christ, it's not the end of the story. In Christ, in Christian marriages, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are given the ability to reverse that power struggle. That's what Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33 are all about. Reversing the effects of living in a fallen world. Turning marriages back up the right way. No longer her dominate him in dominating him and and him ruling her, but now him loving her and her submitting to his loving lead. Those then are the effects of the woman of living in a world under a curse. Third, we see the effects uh, of the curse uh, as far as the man is concerned. Verses 17 to 19. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, do you remember, Adam was put in the garden to work it and take care of it. Adam was to subdue the earth and to spread life and blessing throughout the world. But again, because he sinned, Adam is no longer fit for purpose and the ground is cursed, verse 17. 
See, just as, as, as Eve knew pain in childbirth, now Adam would know pain. That's the word there in verse 17. Adam would know pain in working the ground. That was his key role in creation. Now it's, it's hard. It's now break, back-breaking stuff. It is complicated and, and stressful, you'll see in verse 18. Thorns and, and thistles making the work, work irksome. And verse 19, now simply making ends meet is at least for the vast majority in this world a daily grind. Do you see that in verse 19? By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. I was very struck this week um, watching, um, well I saw it the week before, the two parts on the telly of a, a Red Nose Day special of uh, four um, celebrities um, going out to one of the slums uh, of, the, of the world and the struggle they had. They lived there just for a week. It's unbearable for them. See, as we look around the world and we see poverty and starvation, it should tell us how serious sin is. It's not meant to be like that. People living in the dirty and sanitary slums of the world is a result of the world being under a curse. It's a result of sin. Both sin now, people not sharing, even though they have so much, and just basically being under sin, under a curse. Not knowing where the next meal is coming from is a result of the curse. That's what we see here in verses 17 to 19. Uh, Gordon Wenham points out that the repetition of the word eat here makes that link. I found this very interesting when I read this this week. See verse 17. Uh, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. And verse 19, by the sweat of your brow you'll eat your food. The word eat is repeated to make a link back to Adam's eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam ate from the tree he should not have eaten from and so now the food he can eat is hard to come by. The food he was given to enjoy and to bring life is hard to get. It's a battle to survive, to just make ends meet. Now that's how it is in the world. Problem is, here in Fullwood, with us living in plenty and the welfare system that we enjoy, we don't feel the devastation of this. But still, every day as we go to work, we can feel the effects of the curse on the world that we live in. Work, the very thing God gave us men to do, has become frustrating. It's not that it's hard work, that's not a problem. Remember chapter 2, verse 15, uh, work was part of God's good creation. We all know how fulfilling it is to do a, a good, honest day's work, how rewarding it is to work hard, how satisfying it is to use our time well. Men are made to work. The problem is not work or even hard work. The problem is with all the frustrations of work, the thorny issues we have to deal with, the struggle in our daily routines, the effort at times just to get through the day. It's all the result of living in a world under the curse and, and should show us how serious sin is. Don't you see what's going on here in these verses? All the things that should have been a way of bringing life and blessing on the world have become ruined. Childbirth, a time of great joy, is marked by agonising pain. Marriage, a relationship that should have been so good, becomes a power struggle marked by disharmony. Work that could have been so rewarding, making it a pleasure to get up in the morning, has become a, a source of struggle and stress. All these are marks of, of living in a world under the curse. And they should make us realise just how serious sin is. They've only come into the world because of sin. 
Sin brings misery and struggle and pain. And we've seen that most acutely in Japan in the earthquake and tsunami that has hit the nation and devastated so many lives this week. Do you see that, how it says it there, verse 17? Cursed is the ground. Now in Romans chapter 8, which we won't turn to now, but in Romans chapter 8, we read that the creation then is groaning. Interestingly, it says like a woman in childbirth, making a link back to this verse, I believe. The creation has been subjected to pain. The creation itself is under a curse. And so the devastation of the earthquake and tsunami shows us how wicked sin is. Not the sin of the people of Japan, I'm not saying that at all, but the sin of mankind, the sin that began with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's why creation is, is, is at odds with itself. Just how bad sin is then can be seen in the terrible destruction that we've seen this week. Now, if that's a new thought for you and it's kind of, uh, you know, oh, a bit out there and uh, I commend to you a, a sermon by John Piper on Romans chapter 8 that he uh, spoke at uh, new, the New Word Alive conference. I think it was three years ago. Do have a look at that. It's very, very good. And if you can't get hold of, the copy, uh, of a copy, I've got a copy of it and be very happy to lend it to you. Sin brings misery and struggle and pain. But even more devastating than everything else that we've seen so far in this chapter is the second effect of sin, and much more briefly, and that is death. So God says to Adam these words in verse 19. He says, you see, by the sweat of your brow you'll eat your food, and then until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Ashes to ashes, Dust to dust, words that I say as I stand over a graveside. And so every time I conduct a funeral, I'm reminded of the seriousness of sin, for the wages of sin is death. No longer is sin, no longer is life and blessing flowing out into the world, but death and curse has come upon us. Change and decay in all around I see, as the hymn writer put it. Death hurts. Man, it hurts. A number in this congregation know how much it hurts as they've been bereaved in these last weeks. Mark Houghton, John Pepper, and and then, of course, as we heard uh, in our notices, Joan Gray, just on Friday as Ted died. Death hurts. I know that all too personally right now. The sudden death of my dad last June the abrupt and immediate and irreversible severing of such a loving relationship is agony. And now I'm experiencing the agony of a slow death as my mum's health deteriorates through terminal cancer. And as I've visited her in hospital over these last weeks and seen other patients around her, I've seen people with with nothing to look forward to. They've had their life. They're not going to get better. See, there comes a moment when time no longer heals but kills. And they've reached that moment. And it is devastating. Death robs us of hope. We can't live without hope. Death is a terrible thing. We should never explain it away. Oh, he had a good innings. She lived to a ripe old age. We should never explain death away. Death is horrible. And you and I cannot reverse it. That's the message of verses 22 to 24. See, verse 22, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Here in these verses is the judgment of death. Adam and Eve being banished from the garden, cut off from God, the source of life. And that is shown symbolically in them being cut off from the tree of life. Now please don't think that this this tree of life is some sort of magical tree with magical fruit. I happen to think there was a real tree in the Garden of Eden called the tree of life. But, But I don't think it had magical fruit that if we ate it we could in some way live eternally. No, it's there as a picture. And so to be banished from it, from the tree of life, to be sent out of the garden, is to be away from the source of life, to be cut off from God. And when you're cut off from the source of life, it's only a matter before you die, a matter of time before you die. It's very clear here then that there's no way back to God and life and blessing. Look at him, verse, verse 24. God placed cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way back to the tree of life. So no one can ever get back into the garden and back into the presence of the Lord. There the flaming sword of judgment is ready to fall on anyone who thinks they can just wander back into God's presence. Now a way to sort of follow that through in the Bible is to think about the, um, uh, think about the temple and the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. You couldn't just walk back into the Holy of Holies. There was a whacking great big curtain in the way saying, no entry, you can't come here. If you come here, you'll die. That's how serious sin is. It has devastated our world, robbing us of life and blessing, bringing broken relationships, a struggle to survive, even birth, the happiest time of life, marred by pain. And to everyone, the shadow of death hangs over us all the way through our lives, from the moment we're born. And now we see that it has cut us off from God, from the very one that we were made to be with and in relationship with. Do you see how all of this, this is everyday life, but how all of this everyday life should show us how serious sin is And indeed it should give us a desire to fight against sin in our own lives and in society. We should wage war against sin. Ask God to give us a hatred of wickedness and a love of righteousness. We should fight against poverty and injustice and and see the dangers of materialism and hedonism in our own lives. But even as we do all of that, we must still realise that no matter what we do, we will not ever be able to deal with the effects of sin in the world. The world's under a curse. Death will always be there. And so in conclusion, in conclusion, we need the God who takes sin seriously to rescue us from the effects of sin. And that, of course, is the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, sin is so serious, God cannot simply turn a blind eye to it Saying sorry isn't enough. Sorry, may I please get back into the presence of God? Sorry, can't we just let it go and forget the past and start over again? No, that would be a huge injustice. Sin is too bad to just sweep it under the carpet. But the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And we see that character of God in Jesus. For as I've printed on this uh, 
handouts. As Jesus died on the cross, Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the, the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Do you see the language of curse? Redeemed from it. On the cross, you see, Jesus dealt with the curse. In Christ, the, the curse is lifted. And as we close, turn with me to Mark chapter 15 and just see how all these things come together. Uh, page 1023. Mark chapter 15 and verses 33 to 38 where we see Jesus on the cross And think of all the images, all the pictures, all the words that we've thought about in Genesis chapter 3. Mark chapter 15, you see at the cross, the flaming sword of judgment fell on Jesus so that it wouldn't have to fall on us. So that he knew what it was to be separated from the Father. He was banished from God's presence, verse 34. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was separated from God. Verse 37, he suffered death for us. He had never sinned, he didn't deserve death. Death came upon him. And verse 38, he opened the way back to God. The temple curtain was torn in two. That curtain that had always been a no entry sign, don't come in here, you'll die. He now says, here's a way back in. And there at the cross we see just how serious sin is. How serious God takes it. For it took the death of the Son of God to bring us back to him, to take the curse and defeat death. Knowing that, how can we do anything but take sin seriously? And knowing that, how can we do anything but praise our majestic and gracious and kind and loving God for his great mercy and rescue toward us? Let's pray. King of kings, majesty, God of heaven. Almighty God, you are indeed the, the great God above all gods, the most high God. And we get a glimpse in your word of just how terrible it is to rebel against you. What a travesty it is. We ask you to help us to see as we look around at the the world every day, all the things we've been thinking about, the everyday things of life as we see them, all the things that are just not right in the world, we pray that you'd help us to see that it's all a result of sin and, and therefore hate sin, hate it in our own lives, hate it in society, work against it. Yet we pray at the same time that we realise that nothing we can do will ever completely change things. For we live under this curse Death is always there. And so we thank you that you are the gentle saviour, the strong deliverer, and in Christ, the closest friend. Father, these might be truths that we've known for a long time. There might be, in some senses, nothing new today for some of us. But we pray that um, seeing just the 
you know, how bad sin is and how great you are would leave us wanting to praise you with our lives and indeed with our lips as well. And may we do that to your praise and glory.